According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, in my favorite book of the Bible. There are 66 of them, and my favorite one is Hebrews. My favorite chapter in Hebrews is chapter 10, so you may join me there. And... uh, Verse 3. I don't know if it's my favorite verse or not, but this is where we are this morning. Hebrews 10, 3. We've actually had a couple of classes now in this chapter and realize that everything that leads up to it feeds this chapter, that it serves as a capstone, it serves as a culmination. All of the glories of our Savior as our high priest, all of the glories of our Savior as the mediator of the new covenant, all the glories of our Savior and everything that he represents comes into focus here in this chapter and uh, demonstrating the, how he accomplished what law could never do. Hebrews 10.1 says, For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Understand, never means never. And it doesn't matter how many times they do it, year after year after year after year, it never perfects the worshipers. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? If, if even one time those sacrifices could accomplish what the cross of Christ accomplished, then we'd be done with it. And that would make the cross void. It would make the cross unnecessary or meaningless. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have had consciousness of sins. And so we spent last week really exploring the ramifications of this verse. It is a, it is a counterfactual. It is a, it is a second-class condition. It is not true. If it was true, then it would have done this. And since it's not true, it didn't do this. But Jesus did. And that's the point. And I hope we take the time to really process it, to realize that what law could not do, Jesus did. And what they could not receive, we have received. So when it says, worshipers having once been cleansed, raise your hand. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. You are a worshiper having once been cleansed, once and for all been cleansed. And when it says would no longer have had consciousness of sins, again, raise your hands. No longer have consciousness of sins. And the blessings we have positionally and experientially to walk in the newness of life, to leave behind those things that need to be behind, to not have that conscious awareness of sins, to not be overwhelmed by our sinfulness as David was, as Old Testament saints clearly were. You know, it's interesting, even in the New Testament, even when Paul says, talks about the chief of all sinners among whom I am foremost of all, he doesn't dwell on it. He lets it go as a simple statement that he is the chief of all sinners and he moves on from there. He is not absorbed by it. It's not consuming him as it was for David when he wrote Psalm 32 or when he wrote Psalm 51. In those moments of confession, see, we have the blood of Jesus Christ that keeps on cleansing us from all sin. And we have that, that the blessing to be able to forget what God is forgetting and he wants us as well. So we'll talk about this here moving forward because it says in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. 
Every time it came up again, oh, here we go again. Every time it came up again, whether it was Passover or uh, Pentecost or Booths, whatever uh, uh, a festival you want to talk about is a reminder of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. How does a sinful people approach a holy God? They have the reminder year after year after year. Whereas we, on the other hand, we have a memorial looking back and we have a proclamation looking forward. We have the completed work of Jesus Christ and the delight that we have to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And that's not remembering our sin or dwelling on our sin or having the really the overpowering uh, consciousness, the consciousness of sins that we were looking at there uh, last week out of verse 2. So if I have the right slide here, I do not have the right slide here. Let's try that one. No, let's try that one. Here we go. All right. And realize there is a difference. And then part of the understanding related to Old Testament versus New Testament, some of those things that don't often get thought about, but they're worth thinking about related to how uh, as salvation is applied by grace through faith, always has been, always will be. But it's simpler in our perspective because of our, our hindsight. It's simpler from our perspective as church age believers because we can look back to what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And we can look back and we place our faith in Christ, the Christ who died and rose again on our behalf. In the Old Testament, they were looking forward. They still were believing in Christ. They still were placing their faith in the coming Messiah, placing their faith in the person of Jesus Christ, the same way we place our faith in the person of Jesus Christ. They just didn't have all the information we have. All right, based upon what they knew, they were trusting Christ. Based upon what we know, much more, we are trusting Christ and walking in a mature walk that they could never even dream of walking in a mature walk, having our sins removed. They simply had their sins covered. And so one of the big differences, let me back up a bit, we talk about sins covered versus sins removed. So covering of sin, the atonement of sin. You realize that David spoke about having his sins covered. And that's what atonement did. That's what the uh, atonement language even speaks of in the Hebrew kafar or what we call Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It's the covering of sin, not the removal of sin, which is why when believers died in the Old Testament, they didn't go to heaven because their sins were simply covered, not removed. So they went to Abraham's bosom. They had a place of rest. They had a place of comfort, but not in the personal presence of God himself, not until Jesus dies and rises again. Then he can lead captivity captive. Then he can take paradise out of Abraham's bosom or out of Sheol, out of uh, uh, where it had been and elevate it to the third heaven. He can take it up to heaven itself. When, when the Apostle Paul was caught up to paradise, it was in the third heaven. It was not in uh, Sheol across the gulf from the, uh, from the place of torments as uh, we see it there. So covering sins versus taking away sins. Pre-Calvary salvation. In other words, looking forward to the cross, you're still believing in Christ, you're still receiving eternal life. John, uh, Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's always been the case. Covering sins leaves an ongoing conscious awareness of those sins. We've got to be clear on that. This verse is dealing with that. Whereas taking away sins, what we have post-Calvary salvation, provides for the cessation of such conscious awareness. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, keeps on cleansing us from all sin. And uh, what a what a position, possession, what a treasure 
that we can uh, rejoice over in the church age. All right, on now to verses 3 and 4. In those sacrifices, back then, what they used to do, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. How do you expect for a ritual? How does an animal ritual, how does a shadow doctrine ritual have substantial effects? It cannot. Shadows are shadows, substance is substance. To have our sin removed in substance requires a substance sacrifice, not a shadow sacrifice. And just by virtue of the, of the case, by virtue of God's wisdom in revealing what he reveals, he doesn't reveal the shadow to get it done. He reveals the shadow to teach us how, it's gonna, how he's going to get it done. And then he gets it done. We've got to be clear on this. We've, we've talked about it, the shadow doctrine we've seen uh, in times past. All right. And so those sacrifices, those sacrifices were repeated reminders of what God intends to never remember. Those sacrifices were repeated reminders of what God intends to never remember. God intends to forget. God intends to not remember. The omniscient God who knows everything sovereignly chooses to take certain things and never think about them ever again. To never bring them to the forefront of his thinking. Now he can't stop being omniscient. He can't stop being God. But he can choose to not remember. Alright? And so can we, by the way. We can also choose and we're accountable to not remember what it is that he would have for us to not remember. When we're told forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, you know what that's about? That's God telling us to not remember the things we should not be remembering. Or when he tells us to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus, you know what that's about? That's thinking the way God tells us to think. Or how about when he says, finally, brethren, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is true, whatever is lovely, he gives us a list in Philippians 4.8, let your mind dwell on these things. And I know, speaking for myself, my mind dwells on things that don't qualify based on that list. My mind dwells on things that are not right, pure, true, lovely. If there's any excellent, anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. And so God chooses to not remember our sin, our individual sins, Israel's national sins, or the lost estate of Adam in the position of sin. God's going to forget all of that. And uh, we've got to be uh, hopefully thankful related to what these verses say. So let's take a look at them. You probably know them already. Isaiah 43. And yet they're worth reading, they're worth considering. How does an omniscient God forget things? Well, he chooses not to remember them. He chooses to not bring them to his thinking. Isaiah 43 and verse 25. And this is neat to me. I enjoy this. As far as an Old Testament soteriological passage, as far as different things go, because it was written and it was given during a time frame that sins were not wiped out, when sins were not removed, when sins were simply covered. But the promise was that someday they would be wiped out. Someday they would be removed. And so in Isaiah 43, 25, it says, I... Even I, only I, am the one 
who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. Isn't that beautiful? He's not saving you because you need to be saved. He's saving you because he wants to for his own sake and for the sake of his son. I, even I, am the one, the only one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. So then what's verse 26? Put me in remembrance. (laughs) What, What a tandem. I won't remember your sins, so you remember me. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue our case together. State your cause that you may be proved right. And it's a marvelous promise that God has a, a day coming. He has a day that he accomplished in Christ when he nailed those sins to the cross. When he comes back the second time, is it going to be with reference to sin? No, when he again comes into the world, it'll be without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. What a joy that we have. Still in Isaiah, how about chapter 65? Isaiah 65. Again, written in the Old Testament, written during the time when sins were not removed, when sins were not blotted out, when sins were not, they were simply covered, they were atoned for, they were covered in anticipation. He passed over those sins, looking forward to the cross. And yet there's an expectation that a day is coming when he will forget them. So Isaiah 65, 17, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Remembered or come to mind. And I like that expression too. To me, that's, that's useful. Because it's really two different things. Remembered, whereby you don't consciously do it. But then where it comes to mind, that becomes your next challenge. <laughs> you didn't remember it, but somebody else reminded you of it or something else reminded you or some event or some song some music started playing and you remembered oh wow or whatever it could be anything right and and sometimes it it surprises you the memories that come flooding back that you didn't consciously bring about but there it was okay then what do you do with it now i believe what you ought to do with it is just take it captive and chuck it back behind you where it belongs (laughs) and say all right lord uh, I didn't remember that, but it came to mind, so I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm not going to dwell on it. And since it came to mind, I'm just going to take it captive and throw it away and, and advance. I'm going to move on. Okay? But now both of these are part of the promise in the new heavens and on the new earth, where it says the former things will not be remembered or even come to mind. In the sovereignty of God, where we don't even, those memories never even hit us. We're, we're graced out for all eternity. What a joy. Nationally, of course, this is part of Israel's national promise in terms of the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, 34. Sometimes national sins get confused with personal sins, get confused with the Adamic estate of sin. And so a lot of times there's sloppy theology that kind of mashes these things all together. And uh, when they do that, you end up with um, goulash. <laughs> you, you end up with a stew that really doesn't need to be stewed. Keep those ingredients separate and, uh, and, and digest each one separately. You'll do much better. Jeremiah 31 is the new covenant and it's not for the church. Verse 31 says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. 
So there you go. <laughs> How plain and simple can you get? And, uh, you know, you, you can answer however you want to answer. And sometimes, I don't know, somebody told me, he said, well, I'm, in the, I'm under the new covenant right now. And I said, really? Are you the house of Israel or the house of Judah? You know, explain this to me. And, uh, okay, maybe I'm a little ornery, but I just want to know, because here's what the text says. All right, explain this to me. It's not for the church. It's not for the bride of Christ. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We don't have the few and spectacular, but still few millennial blessings that Israel will have in the future. All right. So there's the covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Again, what church age saint can claim that? The church didn't have, it wasn't the church fathers that came out of Egypt. It wasn't the church fathers that received Mosaic covenant. It was Israel's fathers that received, that were brought out of Egypt, that received the Mosaic covenant. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. You know, I don't care if you're the second chief of all sinners right after the Apostle Paul. If you're the second biggest sinner ever to walk this earth, you never broke Mosaic law. You were never under Mosaic law. You and I were never under Mosaic law. We're the church. We're the bride of Christ. Let's understand this for what it is. My covenant which they broke, declare, uh, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Do you know why Israel needs a new covenant? Because they broke the old one. Why would the church need the new covenant? We didn't break the old one. We had nothing to do with the old one. We have nothing to do with the new one either, other than the fact that Jesus is the mediator and we are ministers in Christ. He is the mediator of the new covenant. We are ministers of the new covenant in Christ. But we're not receiving the new covenant any more than we're receiving invitations to the wedding supper. Does the bride get, receive an invitation or is the bride giving the invitations? Figure that one out. All right. I continue. In verse uh, 33, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. And it's marvelous the way a divided house becomes a reunified house here in between verse 31 and verse 33. I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. We're not there yet. They've got to go through tribulation first. I will put my law within them. On their heart, I will write it. Is that a church age blessing? Not at all. I will be, I will be their God. They will be my people his earthly people. We are his heavenly people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. No Jewish person will have to teach another Jewish person anything about Yahweh in the millennium. But all the Jewish people are going to have to teach the Gentiles and in fact, they're going to grab them 10 to 1. <laughs> 10 Gentiles will grab the hem of a Jew and say, teach me. So we have eschatological promises here. This is not the case for the body of Christ today. The body of Christ today, do, do, uh, do some of us do the teaching and do some of us need the teaching? And how does this work? Of course, we teach one another. We teach one another. This is not a new covenant provision that we have today. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Well, why are they making a difference between iniquity and sin? Why is this being described as two different things? Well, if you want to be a lazy theologian, you can just 
ignore it, pretend it's not there, and say, well, it's all the same thing. And my sins are forgiven, so I must be in the new covenant. And you realize what a flawed logic that is. What a flawed logic that is. Israel has to have their personal sins dealt with. They have to have their national sins dealt with. They have to have the national iniquity uh, uh, dealt with. See, he can't just excuse the breaking of the Mosaic Covenant and say, oh, well, you blew that one, try this one. He has to fulfill that Mosaic Covenant, and he does. He becomes the curse. And so now he can give them the new covenant. So the forgiveness of sins, we have the forgiveness of national iniquity, we have the forgiveness of sin, singular, I will remember no more. Is what God intends to do. I will remember no more. How about Psalm 25 and verse 7? Psalm 25 and verse 7. And uh, verse 7 is great because it's a do not remember and it follows verse 6 which is a please remember. Okay. What a psalm. A psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause, they will be ashamed. There has never once been a believer in Jesus Christ that ever suffered for his, uh, on, by the virtue of trusting in, in God. The one who, who trusts in God will never be disappointed. You will never be spiritually disappointed by walking in faith. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. It's not content to just get saved and then wait to go to heaven when you die. There's a whole walk in between. There is a walk of growth, a walk of learning. Teach me, lead me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord. So in, in his David's prayer here, he's commanding God to remember. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness, or loving kindnesses, for they have been from of old. Now, are these just abstract concepts? Are these just the idea of grace and truth? Are they just the idea of compassion and loving kindnesses? Or is this actually, can we see here, a personal relationship to our Savior Jesus Christ? They have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. And so it goes on from there. All right. So we have the remember in verse 6 and the do not remember in verse 7. That's quite a bold prayer. That's quite a, um, a prophetic prayer, particularly coming from the status of an Old Testament believer where his sins are covered, not removed. Particularly coming from the status of an Old Testament believer who can, uh, can only wait for a kingdom to come in which the sins would finally be removed. So those repeated sacrifices, repeated reminders of what God intends to never remember. Back to Hebrews 10, verses 3 and 4. 
For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Right? It is impossible. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is at a point in a study that we're not going to do. <laughs> but this is that's not our format this hour. But if we were going through Hebrews on a, on a 9.30 hour or on a Wednesday night service, this is the kind of point in a study where we would have to stop and we would have to do a doctrinal development. We would have to actually take several weeks over the concepts of possible versus impossible. We would have to do a study because with God, all things are possible except for the things God says himself are impossible. So we are left now to reconcile and we are left now to harmonize and to synthesize all of Scripture because no verse of the Bible is is contradictory with any other verse of the Bible. And if on their surface they appear to be contradictory, like with God all things are possible, okay, well then why can't the blood of bulls and goats take away sin? I thought you said with God all things are possible. Well, is that true or not? Yes, it's true. But it's also true, okay, that there are that even with God, the blood of bulls and goats is impossible for them to take away sin. And so it seems like we have here a uh, we have here a, a conundrum, right? We've got a puzzle, and this is where um, you know this is where uh, you know you got to work out the puzzle. This is where you have to uh, kind of work it through and say, all right, this says this, this says this. Both are true. How are both true? With God, all things are possible. All right. Is that an absolute statement without any qualifications or does that come in a context that actually has qualifications or has parameters or has um, a context by which we take it? And of course it is. Okay. And uh, by doing this exercise, it's actually quite quite worthwhile. All right. So let's look at Matthew 19. Let's remind ourselves of these things. So yeah, we would do things about impossibility versus possibility. We would see both. We would end up with a beautiful truth that actually embraces both sides of what appears to be contradictory, and yet uh, we will embrace it. Matthew 19 and verse 26. Let me tell you, if it was possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, I believe God would have done that and saved his son. <laughs> okay? He would have said, all right, do these, uh, the, the, the blood of bulls and goats will get you there someday. So it's not possible. It's not possible. But with God, all things are possible. All right, Matthew nineteen twenty six. This is where I like to do, I don't know, it's, it's functional. If you get um, like the Peter Falk character of Columbo where you can just, you know, act all puzzled and act all confused and say, you know, that is interesting, isn't that, you know? One thing I just don't understand, you know? And with God, all things are possible. Yeah, you know, and the, but then, and so he walks, and before, you know, of course the villain is always dumber than Columbo's pretending to be. It's, it's, it, he steps in it every time. He constantly just falls for it every time. All right. Yes, with God all things are possible. Well, let's see. Is the, is the, um, is the context for this just an absolute uh, unquestioned statement without any parameters of any sort? Well, no, actually, that's not the case. So Matthew nineteen twenty six. 
Um, the, uh, and it's in a passage here where he's talking about whether well, the rich young ruler thinks that he's earned eternal life. The teacher comes and says, what good thing should I do to obtain eternal life? In verse 16, you know, how can I earn, earn my salvation? Now, you know, somebody comes and asks you that, you might just say, well, dummy, you can't earn your salvation, you know. But he actually, Jesus plays along with it and says, okay, huh, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Just fulfill Mosaic law and you can earn eternal life. How about that? Well, then he said to him, well, which ones? So Jesus said, well, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. Gives him a sample, doesn't give him all 619, but gives him a sample of some laws. And this young man said to him, I'm good, I've done all that. All these things I've kept, what am I still lacking? Isn't that sweet? You know, even the, even the biggest legalist on earth who thinks he's the best guy around, there's still something nagging in his mind that tells him that he's, he falls short, you know? What am I still lacking? So Jesus says, all right, tell you what. If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Now, factually, what Jesus said there is actually not true. Does that mean that Jesus lied? Okay. Well, yeah, but it was one of those Rahab lies that's not a sin. Okay. It's a sanctified, Rahab's in the hall of fame of faith and she lied. This is factually not a true statement, but he uses it to instruct. It is a teaching device. And as a teaching device, he's employing it here. So for the sake of argument, he says, all right, let's just say you're one commandment away. Here it is. And it's one that the man can't live up to. It's one that he can't apply. So the young man heard this statement. He went away grieving. He was one who owned much property. So Jesus said to his disciples, now that he's taught that lesson, now he's going to teach a lesson to his disciples. Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And so he's teaching, now he's using another device, teaching his disciples and showing a contrast, showing a a ratio, a scale, and using the language of extreme to communicate it. So when the disciples heard this, and they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? Then who can be saved if that's the way it's going to be? And so looking at them, Jesus said, with people, this is impossible. In the context of how does somebody get saved? But with God, all things are possible. Again, the scope of which is God versus man in a proportion, and how do we get saved? Can a human being do it? Can anybody earn their salvation? No. But with God, all things are possible. God will accomplish what law cannot do. God will accomplish what human effort cannot do. God will accomplish what none of us can do. But it will be the God-man who gets it done on our behalf. All right. So yeah, that with God, all things are possible. Okay. You also have Mark 10, 27, same context, parallel text. Yes, with God all things are possible, but that doesn't mean that God can do the impossible. That would be absurd. 
And that's why we have to wrap our minds around it because we're geared this way. We, this is how we think. A is not not A, right? The laws of non-contradiction, they apply. This is, uh, sometimes it's mocked. In fact, our postmodern culture hates it because it's Aristotle and it's Western logic and whatever. They just, they want to say, well, if it's part of Western civilization, it has to be bad. But then, well, wait a minute, what do you replace it with? When you argue against it, you're actually using the same logic you're saying isn't true to try to disprove what you're saying isn't true. What is, is, and what isn't, is, is, isn't, and we, we recognize that. That's, that's, that's just thought. God's not the author of confusion. We have to handle the scriptures logically because that's the mind of Christ. That's the way God thinks. All right. And so it's curious to me when these things come. And so, so they think they've got this winning argument when they say, can God build a rock so big he can't lift it? Right? Like, are you kidding me? What a ludicrous thing. Okay? So they, they, it's, it's, or can he make a square circle? Well, by definition you have presented nonsense. You have not presented anything rational, but you want me to answer your irrational nonsense rationally. Why would I do such a thing? Why would God do such a thing? Like he's got time for that, okay? Or how about a married bachelor? Doesn't happen, okay? Because see, what you're doing is by definition... You're creating a, a logical absurdity and then you're throwing it to the creator God of the universe, the Logos, as if you're going to stump him on his logic. Okay, hello, he's the Logos. All right. So with God, all things are possible, but that comes in the scope and a context of his creation, his existence, his nature, the things that he himself cannot do. God cannot sin. God cannot lie. God cannot change. God cannot revoke your salvation. There's a lot of things that God cannot do. The very same God with whom all things are possible. Okay? So let's relax about some of these things that we think are contradictory because they're not. And we realize that both sides are actually true in the settings that they're placed in, in their context that they're placed in. God himself declares some things to be impossible. And if you want a short list... Uh, we have some here. For example, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. How about uh, we had an earlier one in chapter 6. We had another impossibility we've already dealt with way back in chapter 6 where he says it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Remember that? That was a frightening verse, wasn't it? For uh, the warning of chapter 6 whereby uh, you've once been enlightened, you've tasted of the heavenly gift, you've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, you have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, shall we say, you've been saved and received eternal life. But then you have fallen into doctrinal apostasy. You have fallen into doctrinal apostasy. What are you going to do, get saved again? It's impossible. How are you going to get saved again? It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. All right. You know, in, in terms of uh, our own evangelism, our own outreach to different folks, um, and there's a lot of hurt people out there, there's a lot of bitter people out there, but it's curious, those 
the the absolute unbelievers, the the the, the unbelievers obviously never been saved. You can reach them with a the gospel. You can reach them with hope. You can reach them with eternal life. You can reach them with the forgiveness of sins. And, and we do. I mean, that's the nature of evangelism. And that's the nature of the Holy Spirit's conviction. And that's the nature of what happens. And the, the thrill and the joy of a new faith, of a new believer who just, wow, they get saved. And then a whole weight of guilt and a whole weight of the past is just gone. What a thrill. It's harder. You know who's harder to reach than that? Someone who already is saved. Someone who got saved years ago. Maybe got saved in their childhood or got saved whenever in the past and then fell into prolonged carnality, prolonged darkness. They're walking in long-term reversionism. Okay? Have they lost their salvation? Thank you. <laughs> okay. Wasn't going to let anybody leave today if they can't answer that one right. No, they haven't lost their salvation. They've lost the joy of their salvation, clearly. They have also thrown away, they also have, there's no option. They don't have the option that the unbeliever has in the sense of getting saved because they already are. Instead, actually, they've got the options they've got in front of them are to be humbled under the hand of God's judgment and discipline and to return back to teaching, to, go, to be like the prodigal son and go back to the father's house in, a, in an abject confession and say, Father, I'm not, I'm not worthy. I've been walking in darkness. And to go through, to be restored to fellowship. And I believe the scripture, this passage and other passages are actually describing that's harder than an unbeliever getting saved the first time. See. Anyway, it is another statement of impossibility in the book of Hebrews. Uh, so 10.4 is not the first statement of impossibility. It's the second after 6.6, Hebrews 6.6. We also have some statements of impossibility in the Gospels. Matthew 26.39. I think we can add to this list. It's already said, you know, it's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible. He cannot abide sin in the solemn assembly. There's a lot of things that God says it's not possible. But Jesus, in praying to the Father, when he says, if possible, we get that. It's not. <laughs> it's not possible. So Jesus is praying the night before he goes to the cross, he falls on his face and says, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. How does the Father answer this prayer? He sends him to the cross. <laughs> the Father doesn't say, oh well, I'll find somebody else to do it. There is nobody else to do it. If possible. Well, I thought with God all things are possible. Not saving us. It takes Jesus and Jesus only. The one and only. The way, the truth, and the life. Uh, Mark 14, I think it's parallel, but it's more expansive. Verse 35 and 36. Yeah, it's a parallel text. It's slightly more uh, expansive of the, in the language as he communicates it. 
He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. He actually voiced it out loud. He says, Father, take this cup away. Never sinned. He's not in rebellion. He's thinking about it. You ever think about a sin and then decide, no, I can't do that. Well, temptation is not a sin. Temptation is not a sin. And even thinking about it, considering, no, when you stop and you say, okay, no, because then what's the outcome? It's only when, uh, when lust, when you get carried away by your sin and lust conceives, then it gives birth to death. But just being tempted by the sin doesn't make you sin. Even thinking about doing it doesn't make you sin. Wanting to do it, now you're getting close. (laughs) When you decide, okay, I'm going to do it. Now you've conceived. Uh, James says that's conception. Now you've conceived. Now you want to do it. Now you're going to do it. Now you intend to do it. And you start working out the, the how, the where, when, why, and how because you want to. Well, then you're already carnal. Once you decide you're going to do it, you're carnal from that moment on. All right. So here, the things that are possible, the things that are impossible. We can appreciate that. Therefore, back to Hebrews, therefore, when he comes into the world, it's actually pretty neat that he's quoting scripture He's quoting scripture. Comes from Psalm 40. We've got a quotation here in uh, verses 5, 6, and 7. All right. So Levitical priesthood can't save us. They can't cleanse our conscience. They can't make us perfect. All they can do is remind them of, of their sin year by year. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So when he came into the world, he wasn't coming into the world to offer bulls and goats. He wasn't coming into the world to uh, reform the Levitical priesthood. He was coming in the world to give himself, to sacrifice himself and accomplish what bulls and goats could not do. And he was coming into the world in fulfillment of the prophecy of David in Psalm 40. So therefore, when he comes into the world, he says... Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offering and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. And we've got a marvelous text here that was, that was true in David's day, and he wrote it out in Psalm 40, for his own application. And then prophetically, he's looking forward to Messiah. And when Messiah comes, we have the the anti-type for the type. The typology is uh, David. The realization of that typology is Jesus. And then we have the explanation that comes. All right. So verses 5, 6, and 7 is a quotation from Psalm 40. 
And then the author of Hebrews repeats it in verses 8 and 9. He, he splits it in half and he repeats it. Notice verse 8, after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them. And he stops to make a comment. And he makes a comment, he says, which are offered according to the law. He actually breaks the statement down in half and expounds. He then said, so after saying above, then he said, and he broke it up for a reason. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. I have come to do your will. Another explanation. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. This is quite pedantic. This is quite tedious. I mean, he's, he's spelling it out. He already said, he quoted the whole psalm or verses, not the whole psalm, but uh, verses 5, 6, and 7 here is essentially all of Psalm 40, verse 7 and 8. And he takes that whole segment, gives it once, and then gives it a second time, a little bit at a time. The first half, then the second half. And he's showing us that second half that we, we wrap our arms around, we embrace it. It's the second half. It's that Jesus fulfilled the will of God, His good pleasure, what bulls and rams and goats could never do. He took away the first in order to establish or ground the second. And it's by this will, the will of the Father, we have been sanctified. It's the will of the Father. He wanted the Father to change His will and then said, nope, your will be done. It's the will of the Father that saves us. It's by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Man, there's a lot of truth in this. So let's take a look at it. Let's handle verses 5 through 7 and see how far we get. The, um, the quote comes from Psalm 40, and this is really after Psalm 110. Psalm 110 had the, uh, had the focus early in the book of Hebrews, you might remember. Psalm 110 was dominant in those early chapters where, uh, you know, to which of the sons did he ever say, sit at my right hand until uh, I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, or to uh, you were a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Those, those both came out of Psalm 110. And the author got a lot of mileage out of Psalm 110 as he was uh, bringing it into the book of Hebrews and exhorting the uh, readers of Hebrews in the early chapters. Now when he gets to his uh, wrap-up here in chapter 10, he goes from Psalm 110 into Psalm 40. And he brings Psalm 40 out uh, repeatedly. Brings Psalm 40 out at least these two times and very um, pointedly so. He will hit Psalm 110 again later in this chapter though. That does come up. Uh, verse 13 will be another Psalm 110 usage. Alright, let's look at Psalm 40. Flip back to Psalm 40. Because this was uh, a blessing for David in his lifetime. It was a blessing for the Jewish people in the Old Testament. Part of the Hebrew canon for their edification and, and uh, instruction. Gets brought into our Testament, given to us. All right, Psalm 40 is a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. So David's under testing and he's involved in prayer. And he waits until that prayer gets answered. 
He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. So Psalm 40 is a prayer of a believer that has been through some battles and has watched God and His faithfulness. How blessed, how happy, Asherah, happy is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. So when you're tested by faith, you've got to be walking by faith, trusting in God. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and uh, speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. So here is a mature believer celebrating what God has done, giving praise for everything, and admitting that uh, we only know a fraction. We only know a tiny little bit. There is too much to count. There is too much to count. Nothing could compare. All right, you know, if all the if, if, if the ocean was ink and if every stock was a quill and if every man was a scribe and we were to write the faithfulness of God across the sky, we wouldn't, we'd run out of ink. We'd run out of, uh, we, couldn't, we couldn't tell the grace of God. Likewise here, if I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired have brought you no pleasure. Your soul has not been pleased. And it's curious because didn't he command them? He commanded those sacrifices. He gave them to Moses. They were part of the law. They were shadows. They were instructive. They were pointing forward to what he really is pleased by. But the ritual doesn't please him. The ritual does not satisfy him like his beloved son satisfies him. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. That's a big difference from a body you have prepared for me. It's actually not a big difference. It just seems like it. My ears you have opened. When, when it gets put in Hebrews, it's changed to a body you have prepared for me. And there's a reason for that, okay? And it's cool. Same Holy Spirit wrote both Old Testament and New Testament. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. So here's a mature believer going through testing, engaging in his prayer ministry, achieving victories and praising God for every last one of them. And animal ritual was not a part of any of that. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. So here's what uh, David writes. And this is what gets quoted. This is going to have, it had David application. It's going to have Jesus application. All right. We'll stop it there. Here's what we're looking at. There are prophetic words that are being fulfilled. Prophetic words, not just from David, but from a multiplicity of prophets. Prophetic words of Samuel. Prophetic words of David. These become the words of Jesus Christ when he comes into the world. And is explicitly said so in Hebrews. The prophetic words of Samuel, the prophetic words of David, I believe all the prophets, Jesus was reciting them from the time he entered the world to the time he left the world and, and all in between. 
when he was on the cross, he's citing Psalm 22. When, um, when he's tempted by Satan, he's citing Deuteronomy. Jesus was constantly, constantly citing Scripture, and most of the Scriptures he cited were about him anyway. <laughs> you know, he goes to the disciples on the Emmaus Road and he says, you know, these Scriptures spoke about me. The prophetic words of Samuel and David are the words of Jesus Christ when he comes into the world. So we read Psalm 40. We also got to back up. We got to read uh, 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15, we see Samuel's message. I think we're going to see some more prophets as well. This is where the Jewish nation is so unique. No other nation has this. When we, uh, when we cite the founding fathers, when we try to review our heritage, our past, it's useful, it's great, I enjoy it, just historically speaking, but nothing from our heritage is prophetic for the millennial kingdom or our salvation or the future. As opposed to the Jewish people, as they rehearse their exodus, as they rehearse their Passover, as they rehearse their, uh, their heritage, their history, it's scripture, it's prophetic anticipation of what Christ will fulfill. Altogether glorious. All right, let's look at Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, 22. Because David wasn't just um, making this up. He learned from uh, Samuel who came before him. This is when uh, Saul was in rebellion and denied it. He acted like he did obey. He says, I did obey. For Samuel 15, 13, Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the commandment of the Lord. Right? Hallelujah, brother. We're serving Jesus today. And the older man who knows better says, Really? You've obeyed God, huh? So Samuel says, Well, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? Sanctified sarcasm on the point of Samuel here. He says, well, why am I hearing these sheep? You were supposed to kill everything that breathes. You're not obedient. So then, well, now there's an excuse. Well, well, you know, Saul said, well, they brought them from the Amalekites for the, the people. The people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. What a lame excuse. Well, we mostly obeyed. We just, we saved these. The people saved these. I didn't want to, but the people saved these so that they could sacrifice and get real religious. No. And so, um, let's see, there's no pleasure in that. There's no pleasure in that. Um, anyway, uh, Samuel, in verse 17, says, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, the Lord anointed you king over Israel? What a contrast. Saul had received so much grace, had become the king of Israel, total grace. The Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners and the Amalekites and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? 
So Samuel said to Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. You keep saying so. You can say it over and over and over again. Don't make it true. I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And I brought back King Agag, the king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people, here he goes again. The people took some of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. So here's Samuel's statement. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Don't miss the point. In the shadow ritual, the sacrifice is is all well and good, but it's obedience. That's the issue. Don't confuse the ritual with the reality. Don't confuse what the shadow doctrine is teaching you with a substance that's on the way. And don't think for a minute that if uh, if you make good on the ritual that God will excuse your disobedience. How many Christians do you know think God's going to let them skate on all their sin because, well, they, they do some good church ritual quite a bit. You know, every now and then, you know, they go to church and they throw some money in the grace box or they, you know, they think some church ritual will excuse their disobedience living in defiance of the Scriptures. Mm-mm. And so Samuel uh, teaches the principle here. These are the words of Samuel, quoted by David. David uses them in Psalm 40, quoted by Jesus when he comes into the world. We'll have to pick up here next week, but he comes into the world. Now, this is not the baby in the manger. It wasn't the infant baby Jesus saying this out loud. I believe it was God the Son saying this as he, Kenosis, emptied himself and entered into the virgin's womb. He entered into the virgin's womb saying, a body you have prepared for me. Quoting Psalm 40 in this. We'll come back to this next week. Lord willing and uh, rapture pending. We'll open our ears and uh, look at the language here. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for our Savior. There is so much more to study. Father, I thank you that your son accomplished what bulls and goats could never do. We thank you that your son accomplished what we could never do. We can't save ourselves. Who are we? We're sinners in need of a Savior. He came to be that Savior, and he did it. He brought you the good pleasure that no animal ritual could ever do. He obeyed you, even when he didn't want to, even when he voiced out loud that he would prefer not to go to the cross but he knew that you wanted him there. And so he went. And the pinnacle of obedience became the pinnacle of sacrifice that redeemed each one of us once and for all. Father, uh, there's so much depth to this. We've we've barely scratched it, but open our eyes to see it. Open our eyes to, to proclaim it. And Father, if we've got friends or neighbors or family members or even ourselves, Father, that are trying to cover up some disobedience with some, uh, with some ritual, get a little religion to make up, as if somehow, Father, you're not tracking some kind of brownie point system. You desire the obedience, and we are to walk in the newness of life. Father, I pray that we would consider ourselves as dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
and go forth day by day, moment by moment for His eternal glory. Thank you, Father, for the book of Hebrews. Open our eyes to this truth. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.